0: Uh, Braj Yatra, the first paper in the Braj Yatra session is by Paridi David Mesiji, Braj and Madura Pilgrimage, British Colonial Representation.
1: Uh, good morning everyone, I thank the organizers for inviting people from Braj and Braj is vast and so each of us bring a part of uh, Braj to you and I try and do a very humble Uh, work of uh, what my own PhD thesis is is sort of located at and um, I am looking at um, Braj and Mathura or the Mathura pilgrimage through the colonial eye or through the eye of the colonial administrator and that's uh, where my own intervention in the whole work is located at. Um, What I'm looking at is the British period or the 19th century or 19th century doesn't work it's, okay. yeah? it's, it's, fine. it's it's am I audible to yes, everyone yes, All right. thank you So largely Braj has been understood uh, through the medieval texts or through the question of bhakti movement within uh, the whole idea of Mathura and Braj and my own intervention is to look at what is happening in colonial Mathura. What is happening when Mathura transforms or becomes an administrative unit under the British Raj and that happens somewhere around 1803 uh, wherein the whole process is taken by the British Raj and then converted Mathura into a cantonment as well and that's what my work is located at. What I'm trying to do in this brief Presentation around uh, another 10 minutes is to look at the whole question of writing and textualizing traditions and writing and textualizing the whole uh, nature of what uh, Braj and the Brajyatra or Mathura is. And uh, I'm looking into a few texts exactly two or three texts that have been composed in the early and the middle of the 19th century. And these have been written as administrative accounts. One is a memoir and the rest of them are travelogues. So since they're travelogues, they are concerning each of us because each of us are trying to understand the whole question of yatras and pilgrimage and our own expertise and our own un- little understanding that we have. Um, one of the questions that, uh, in a larger uh, makeup of the whole thing, that all of these colonial texts who are composed around the 19th century and the colonial state is intervening into a whole process of writing and textualizing history for each one of us, there is a whole rhetoric of the lack of the sense of history. And that is also something that we see when it comes to Mathura, Brindavan, Gokul, Brajdham, that there is no sense of history at all. And therein, the British state or the colonial state intervenes and says, it is us who are going to give you a sense of history. It is us who are going to write down your own traditions and your own yatras and that's where memoirs and reference texts come in and administrative texts come in and this question has been largely seen as the inability of the south asian mind to be able to gather and record your own past and so in the intervention of the state is that we'll bring in more historical consciousness to the region which is absol- uh, absolutely absent in any sense of recording their own past uh, Something that has been given by uh, nicholas dirk's a well known uh, his uh, uh, work or social scientist, that the British state is an ethnographic t- state that it is a state that keeps writing and documenting and i uh, quote from one of the texts that I'm also using in the in my presentation. It's by a Christian missionary who travels around Mathura and Brindavan, and he says that in a land like India, where the historic faculty is so singularly defective, it is difficult to know where history ends and where legend actually begins. And herein we are talking about Mathura, which is full of legends and folklores. Um, is there any foundation, in fact, any of the elaborate stories so universally believed. So he starts off visiting Mathura and Brindavan with that kind of a premise and a precedent in his mind, and that is a kind of work that he uh, actually writes down and textualizing the region. So one of the larger texts that I'm looking at has been the work of uh, F.S. Grouse. Now, Grouse was an administrator who was uh, planted by the British Raj to work as a collector in Mathura, and he was serving for a couple of years His is largely a very sympathetic account, though it has its own problems while, and that is something that we see while uh, our own uh, work of reading the text. Now, Grouse has been an antiquarian. He also has a great amount of interest in archeology span and the culture of the region. He wants to find out more about the land. And uh, more than being uh, just an administrator, he's somebody who has a good touch with the native community. He's tried his uh, own, um, uh, you know, he's tried learning the language. wants to know more about the script. He's somebody who wrote this text in 1884 in two editions and it's called Uh, Mathura a district memoir all of us even now when we want to explore what is happening in Mathura and Brindavan in the colonial time this is like a a, a small Bible for each one of us because I also began my own work by looking at only uh, Mathura district memoir and then wherein you find that all the later texts that have been composed on Mathura and Brindavan have actually borrowed expansively from uh, Grouse's work Grouse is just a side info. Grouse is also somebody who is the founder of the famous, very famous archaeological museum, uh, Mathura Museum. And this is how, this is one of the archives that I picked up, our own historians' obsession with archives. Uh, this is the olden pick of the Mathura Museum, and this is how uh, the contemporary Mathura Museum looks like. Um, I'll bring in a f- few uh, features of um, Grouse's work. It is, as I said, a sympathetic account but also it is with the official eye. So he is very clear what he's writing. He is, it is a district gazetteer. He knows that the people who are going to administer the strict from the British point of view, from the ruler's point of view, are actually going to use his text. So there are a lot of complexities and problems when he's looking at Mathura and Vrindavan within the text. He also says, and I'm quoting from Grouse, as good libraries of standard work of reference are scarcely scarcely to be found anywhere in India, out of the presidency towns, I have invariably given in full the very words of my authorities, both ancient and modern. So he knows that he is a person of authority and that's where he assumes his own um, style of writing, a, a sense of superiority even when we read the work of Grouse. How has Grouse also periodized his work? So there is a larger canon of writing that tries to periodize the history of India, something that we also see right now that there is an ancient past which is golden, then there is a Mohammedan past, and then there is an intervention of the colonial state, which is a modern past, and then they are very clear in not calling it a Christian past, something that we really need to think why. Now, There is a religious periodization where Grouse is sort of happy with the way the golden past has been written. And then he says, oh, the Muhammadans were barbaric. And that's how there is a transgression in the whole idea of writing down uh, the history of Mathura. So there's a larger romanticization of what happened in Mathura in the ancient period, but a very little reference, also a condescending reference to what really happened in Mathura during the medieval past. What all all are the kind of questions that Grouse has looked at? So it's an administrative study. He is talking about the arable land. He is talking about the the places that can be ruled. There is a very, very large description of communities, of people, of the lives of uh, people, local histories, He's talking at length about the states of Mathura, and now each of those states have contributed immensely to the, to the urban, to the civic life of Mathura, and I could actually find only one picture. This is something that is easily available in the archives. He is one of the states of Mathura called State Lachmandas, who has contributed immensely to the urban and civic life in creating pilgrimage uh, tours, in helping the British colonial state in making down uh, dharamshalas and, and kothis, where, where pilgrims can actually uh, stay. Even railways, even railways, even has contributed to the Agra Canal. Um, what, is, what else is there in the text of, of uh, Grouse and the other text that I'm going to look at? There's a constant, I think all of this will interest each of us, there's a constant comparison with Banaras and Kashi. And uh, he says that so great is the sanctity of uh, the spot that the panchurists do not really hesitate to declare that a single day spent in Mathura is more meritorious than a lifetime passes uh, at Banaras. So we need to think. Then there is a larger, large section on the Brajayatras Yatras, and I have taken a, uh, well, the it actually contributed to the founding of, uh, or the construction of the Rangaji Temple, and I've taken from the archives two earlier pictures uh, of the Rangji Temple as well. This is the Vraja Mandal. It's a very contemporary. I have taken it from the Bhakti Vedanta Archives, that's the Scone Archives. But there are larger and more beautiful representations of the Braj Yatra. So Grouse gives you a large um, panoramic picture. So all of us who are working on Yatras, Grouse is a very very credible, um, uh, right, uh, you know, source of history in that way. The second text that I'm looking, which is also connecting to Grouse and the other text, is. Narrative of a journey through the upper provinces of India from Calcutta to Bombay is a travelogue. Now, this man, uh, called Rev- Reverend Reginald Heber, in the next photograph, is a, is a reverend. He is a priest, and he is also a traveling priest. So he comes to uh, the upper provinces, and he comes to north, uh, northwest provinces. While passing from Delhi to Agra, he stops for a day or two at Mathura. He stops for a day or two at Mathura, and then he looks at Uh, the people and the life, and he says, oh, greasy pundits, oh, absolutely, uh, you know, grossly deluded pilgrims have no idea what they are doing, and uh, this is how uh, the money-making scam is, uh, the money-making process is taking place in Mathura. The next text that I'm looking at is also around the same time by someone known as Cameron Valentine Princep. He had stayed in uh, Calcutta for a long time. He was born in Calcutta. His family had been in India, and he is a very renowned painter uh, in England, and he was commissioned by the British state to actually write a book on uh, India, and it was called The Glimpses of Imperial Past, which also has a large section on uh, Mathura and Brindavan, wherein the whole question of how dirty the whole city is, you know, the temples have... Uh, a lack of architecture, all of these questions, a very, a very condescending idea of what the culture of the region is, comes into view. Um, A reverend who was traveling, J.E. Scott, has written this large volume called A Vaishnava Holy Land, a jubilee volume in 1906, and he's also someone who keeps writing about India with all the obsessions that the state has to, uh, writing down the traditions and history of India, and his is a very, very clear agenda. How he is writing this text, and he calls it a Vaishnava holy land, so there's also a demarcation of the larger land being a Vaishnava land, and not probably seeing if there are other ways of looking at um, the the region of Mathura and Brindavan. And he says that his idea is very clear to start a Methodist mission. And this is how the whole text has been written, where uh, he says, The whole intention of the text is, and it says in the prologue, that to show how the religion has deteriorated with age and that the present form or the, the present form of Vaishnavism is actually the most corrupt of it. So what happens? So Mathura needs to become a mission field where providence is beckoning. And he says that it is us missionaries who have to actually fight it out in the hard and challenging field of Mathura wherein we need to be able to create a cantonment, which a, a cantonment actually comes in around 1806. So the entire landscape of this sacred geography, and I'm using Diana X, whole idea of what a sacred geography is, transforms. And you have two ideas of what Mathura is. So you have A on the Western side, a cantonment which has dark bungalows, which has a church, which has a new implementation, implementation of the whole idea of what a Christian mission is and that is interacting with the other, largely uh, Hindu idea of a Mathura, and then there are these tensions between the two. He's also recording uh, the questions of these young widows, around 10 or 11 years of old, getting baptized by these Christian priests, and that is, they see the intervention of Christ. There's also a comparison between Krishna and Christ, and that's how the whole larger, uh, this, uh, this providence seems to be working. So why is it that I chose these texts? A, I'm interested in 19th century Mathura, and uh, lesser has been written about Mathura because um, the medieval, uh, the whole uh, medieval circuit of academicians have written a lot about the region. It's a very tiny intervention. I'm trying, I hope it makes some sense. Also, as a historian, I I want to question texts, and I want to know why texts are written, and the questions are that why people write what they write and the intention as to how texts have been written and what is it when they write, there are lots of questions that they don't write. And with that thought, I leave this uh, conference. V- very, very thankful and we have friends from Brach and um, a, a, a lot of thanks from Braj, all of you. Thank you. Any uh, questions? kind of because we always it's Islamic, Islamic. Yeah, thank you, thank so, you. thank you
0: it's a personal question you may decide not to answer yes so you just said that you are interested in why people write these texts yes it will be very interesting to know your intention of doing this whole exercise
1: lovely and i think i would answer this question because uh, one of the texts that we begin with, wherever we are studying as history uh, as history students, I always would call myself a history student, is why people w- write what they write and why do they actually choose their PhD topics. If you look at my own name, I come from a family of two different religions. The, uh, the father's side is actually from uh, Protestant Christianity and my mother's side is a Vaishnav. Now all of that, I think our subjectivities create the people who we are and rather than taking any sides, um, I wanted to, with all the pilgrimages that I have taken with my own mother uh, to Govardhan, and I've done Govardhan a couple of times, I've been very blessed to do that. I, I wanted to take up this region academically. And therein I thought, oh, because my own uh, limitations are towards. Uh, you know, as a, as, a, as a scholar of history, you can't really keep jumping in the large spans of time and say I want to do ancient and medieval and modern also. No, I want to stick to what I have already, already learned. So I stuck to colonial Mathura and picked up Christian texts and picked up texts and how these texts imagine and reimagine a certain landscape and a space, a political domain that we all have always been living in. So that is the only thing. Yeah. Yes. Yes.
0: Uh, did you also study what impact the uh, fact that British were raging racists, I mean the British who ruled on India, were first of all white supremacists. There was really no difference between them and say somebody like a Ku Klux Klan which was used to be in US. Mm-hmm. So uh, the impact of such barbaric racist people hmm. on the uh, gentle culture of uh, um, Braj and Mathura. Did you also happen to study that? Was that did part you, did of- Did you say stu- gender? Gentle, gentle. <laughs>
1: the gentle culture. I, I'm sorry, I didn't understand the, the whole terminology gentle culture, would you want to break it down so I can? I don't think we
0: are a violent second? culture, that's what I mean. You can use yeah, the word non-violence. I, I,
1: I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I would also say that you know, if you look at the archive, and I have spent a lot of time studying in the National Archives and Western UP, so the archives of Mathura are present in Agra and Lucknow and Allahabad. I see that the colonial state also wants to make this kind of an intervention where they are also, you know, somewhere, so it depends from collector to collector. Some of the collectors or the district magistrates are very concerned about the pilgrims' concern. And they are saying, you know, oh, the ghats are breaking down slowly. What if our pilgrims die? We must do something about it. So there, on, there are a series of proceedings and letters that they write all over the subcontinent, asking these princely rajas and the and the princes to say, oh, please contribute to the Brajbhumi. So you see that there is, you know, we cannot be just viewing history in black and white and seeing that oh, racist and not racist, the question is to be able to see that there are these gaps as well and whether all of us are being able to see that as well. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I found both the kind of archive in my Ma'am, work.
0: You can be racist and still be concerned about your subjects. So the slave owner, the plantation owners mm-hmm. in US, yeah. it is not as if they, they were never concerned about the health or well-being of the African-American population which was uh, under their command. So I really don't think that those two things are mutually exclusive. So the fact that I'm worried about the pilgrimage does not rule out, does not preclude the fact or it is not an evidence that I'm not a raging racist. So I mean, uh, there is enough evidence in the history to.
1: Yes, completely. But I think I, I would want to speak from the archive because I wouldn't want to make uh, I, um, I mean, I wouldn't want to make a less nuanced approach on this because this is a subject that I'm dealing and I want to speak from historical archive. And I wouldn't want to take up the authority of saying anything beyond historical archives. This is what I saw. This is what I saw in Graus' work. That's my own interpretation. And this is, but apart from Graus' work, there are different other ways in which we can look at uh, how the state is looking at Mathura and Brindavan. I think we can have this conversation, but thanks a lot for this. Thank you, Thank you very much. Yeah. yes 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 uh, my question is like is uh, jesus uh, worthy of comparing is anyone worthy of comparison first of all right um, i mean it's <laughs> yeah are any two things worthy of comparison because two things of beauty can r- never really be compared so i think i would just end there for me at home we have both things I lived in a church premises where my grandfather was a priest. My mother, following Vaishnavism, had a small Krishna Ladu Gopal at home. We had two things of beauty. So personally, I think if that question is personal, there cannot be a comparison. There can be a pluralism. And that's what all of us are about. That's what Yatras are also about. Yeah, thank you. Uh, excuse me. Uh, I have one question okay. as you are studying archives. And one of my students is working on impact of colonialism on Braja culture, particularly the miniature painting. Mm-hmm. So have you come across uh, impact of colonialism on Braja culture mm-hmm. in these archives, which you have taken? Uh, well, all the archives concern culture, in a way. They are concerning no, all I'm the. i you as an archive, because uh, it will be ha- helpful for my student. You, uh, the, if the student is working on art, yeah. He's so far, I haven't art. I haven't come across archive that is working on art because my work is on um, urban spaces. But if you want a list of archives, maybe we can have this conversation. And yeah, thank you.